And you may be seated. We welcome you and invite you to just make yourself right at home here in the worship and, and uh, our Bible class this morning. We are going to be addressing the subject this morning of love within the community. And our primary focus in teaching this lesson today is going to be living in the light of God's love. Uh, our human nature is we like to be identified we, with, with something or someone or some movement. I invite your attention to St. John chapter 13. I want to begin with verses 34 and 35 this morning. And you're hearing and make some comments regarding Jesus' words here in John chapter 13 in John's gospel. And then we'll go over to 1 John from where our lesson comes from, the context of our lesson comes from this morning. Jesus said this in verse 34 of John chapter 13. He said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus set an example, and he said, As you have observed my love for you, and as you will continue to observe my love for you, as he was preparing to go to Calvary, he said, I want you to love one another. I've set the example before you. Then I want you to notice how he sums up that idea and that thought there in verse number 35 when he said, By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The identifying factor in the Christian community is that love that we display for one another. You have heard me make the statement here before, and you'll hear me make it a lot of times if you let me hang around here very long. Actions speak louder than words. It's one thing to say to someone, I love you. It's one thing to say to the Lord in our worship and in our praise, we love you. And it's another thing to demonstrate that love through our actions. Amen. It takes a lot more effort on the side of actions than it does to verbalize an expression. So Jesus was saying here, this is going to be the identifying factor. This is what is going to set you apart from all other religions, from all other movements, from all other things, and that is the love that you display one for another, and the world sees that love. Now, we're to, Jesus said that we're to love as we are loved, as we are loved by him. You see, the issue of unity and unity and love go hand in hand, they're almost inseparable. The issue of unity is love. Christ's love for us and our willingness to love others as the Lord Jesus Christ has loved us. Amen. You see, Christ's new commandment that I just read here presses us beyond our natural human inclinations to the need for Christ's inspiration. Paul said that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by His Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus Christ's love for us is not dependent on a quality in us that makes us lovable. He loved us before our character changed. Amen. He looked beyond all of that stuff and He, he loved us before we became children of God. That's the beauty of His amazing grace, is that he, didn't, he does not love us based on our actions and based on our behavior, based on our thoughts and ideas, but He loves us based on the fact that we are His human creation. Amen. He loves us when we're unlovable. He loves us because His love, regardless of our strengths and weaknesses, and how many will admit we all have strengths and weaknesses, He loves us regardless of those. That, and, and, and that thought may be humbling to some who, you know, who have this idea and want to be chosen or called and cherished because of their human credentials or their talents or their personalities or achievements. But the fact of the matter is, those are irrelevant to God. Our talents, our achievements, our abilities are irrelevant to Him as it relates to love. He loves us based on the fact that we are His creation. Nothing more. He doesn't love someone over here more than he loves someone over here because they have this talent and this one does not. Amen. Or this one has achieved this certain status within society and this one has not. He does not love us based on those characteristics. But he loves us based on the fact that he is God and he is love. 
Amen. You see, Christ's love is not motivated by any of these human qualities, but it is grace-motivated. Understand, it is grace-motivated. If we are to love in His way, we will have to take seriously that as He talked about in John chapter 14 and verse 14, we are told that we must ask. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. How many of you find yourself praying from time to time and ask Him, Lord, instill in me that love for others that you have for me? Amen? We're told we must ask for it. Then we also learn that in verse 16, it's only going to be by through the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper that He may abide in you forever. We need that helper within us to help us love. As Paul said, the, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We can't even begin to comprehend the kind of love that Jesus Christ has for humanity until we do allow the Holy Spirit to begin to instill that in us. Amen. In a world of quid pro quo, bartered manipulation and facsimiles of love based on symbiosis, you know, unity is not possible without Christ's commandment and our willingness to receive his love for others. Amen. Symbiosis being that living together in more or less intimate association or close union to dissimilar organisms, in other words, just coexisting together. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, with that being said, in 1 John... <coughs> Remember, actions speak louder than words. Because of his emphasis on love in the community, many Bible teachers and scholars and theologians refer to John as the apostle of love. And in both the gospel that bears his name and he wrote, and here in 1 John, the apostle repeatedly stressed the need for believers to love one another. It's the hallmark of who we are. It identifies us as true disciples of Jesus Christ. And as John wrote in his first epistle near the end of the first century, a false teaching had arisen that was known as Gnosticism. And it was already impacting the early church in, 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 in some fashion. Now, Gnosticism as it was, claimed to possess a special enlightenment. An enlightenment that not only made them superior to other believers, but also became a means of salvation for those who believed in that particular doctrine. Now, this elite approach to the Christian faith led to disdain and hatred for believers who did not believe it. If you've ever had the occasion to run into someone who thinks they are just especially enlightened, you'll understand a little bit more what I'm talking about. Those who seem to think that they have a superior insight into God's will, His purpose, and uh, His desires for others. And this can be misleading. Not to take away from the fact that God does work through us and we have been given the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand and to have insight into His Word as it is recorded in the Bible. But when it comes to enlightenment that is beyond the pages of God's Holy Writ, then it's, it's, it's boo-woo. You don't go there. You see, these false teachers also taught that it did not matter how one behaved as long as he or she shared their spiritual enlightenment. John said, wait a minute. He that saith that he has not sinned, he's a liar. He that saith he loves God and does not love his brother, John pointed him out, said, you're a liar. So, John viewed this love for the things of the world as further evidence that these false teachers did not belong to the true household of faith. So just a little bit of, of background there into why John approached this subject as he did. You see, it didn't take long for the early church to experience an assault on the plain truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the adversaries of the true faith had already launched 
false teachers who hoped. And, and, and the, the, the motivation was, and we see, and I'll be cautious on how I, how I present this to you, but we see so much of that today. The motivation was to draw followers after them. Because, you know, we see a propensity on the part of humanity to want to have their ears tickled and hear things that makes them feel good. They like to go home on Sunday morning feeling justified. We've been to church. We've, had, you know, we, we, we preacher got up there and give us a good talk, and he, we go home. But it's not always that way. We sometimes have to be addressed right down to where the rubber meets the road, and we have to be brought to the realization to the fact: here's where we are, here's where we need to be, and here's where God is trying to take us. So, false teachers who had hoped to draw followers after them arose and. And they created confusion and division among the church because they were trying to draw folks away. And they found this, they adopted this doctrine, this teaching of Gnosticism as a way to, you know, draw these folks away and draw a congregation after them. Now, John wrote to remind the churches that love and acceptance among fellow believers, not pride and exclusion, are the hallmarks of true faith. Amen. So John's focus on love always brought the churches back to the essence of expressing their faith. Jesus, as he said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one toward another. Amen. In his letter, the beloved apostle John stressed that faith in action is not evidenced primarily by special knowledge or insight or prophecy or any other spiritual gift or special ability. It's by the love that we express to one another. Actions speak louder than words. We can talk about it until we're blue in the face, but until we demonstrate that love by our actions toward others and how we respond to others determines really how we stand in that. So with that being said, let's go to 1 John chapter 9 or chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. Reading from the New International Version, the Bible says, "Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness." Oh, that's pretty straightforward to me. I mean, you know, I don't, don't have to dance around the, the mulberry bush there to figure out what John's trying to say here. Anyone who stands up and says, I'm a child of God, you know, and I've been born again and all this and that one thing or another, but yet hates his brother, he said he's still in darkness. You, kinda, you, you have to have an appreciation and love for these guys. I mean, they didn't mince words. Uh, they, they, they didn't have to kind of dance around uh, issues. They just come right out and said, here's the way it is. And he goes on to say, whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. How pretty straightforward again. I mean, he just, you know, uh, there's not too many ways you can interpret that passage. I mean, you can uh, you can try to, I suppose someone would be talented enough to twist that and mangle it around if they, I mean, after all, Satan took the words of God and twisted them around and caused Adam and Eve to fall. But, uh, you know, he just comes right out and says it the way it is. Now, we understand, first of all, that John was, first John was written primarily to encounter the false teaching that we call, and as I've introduced you as Gnosticism, if you haven't heard of it before, which claim to be, you know, we're, we're the enlightened ones. I had a vision and God spoke to me. How often do we hear that song and dance? Which I'm not, don't misunderstand. I, I am all for, I'm all for God-given visions and, and, and insights in His Word. But if it doesn't match up with what's in there, then they may have had a vision, but it wasn't from God. Might have been that, well, whatever, you know. They had the night before, but uh, you know, you know they, they claim to be in the light, having special knowledge and insight beyond the simple gospel. And this is where you know we have some movements out there today, which I will not name, but we have movements out there today that were established on that very idea. 
that someone heard from God and some God spoke to this one or that one or whatever, and total religious movements were born out of the fact that they said God told me this and that and books were written and people began to follow that and totally adverse to the Word of God as it stands today. So this is what John was going at. Look, you know, nothing transcends or replaces the love that we're to have one for another. And that's our true identity. Now, John's letter refuted these, uh, these false teachers and, and their claims by pointing out that their disdain for fellow believers and their hatred for fellow believers, he noted is evidenced of still being in the darkness. He said, look, if this is the attitude that comes from this kind of teaching, then they're still in darkness. They don't know the light. Because John also said, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So it's one thing to say we're walking in the light. It's one thing to v verbalize that we are children of God, and it's another thing to demonstrate it by our actions and by how we respond in the community of faith, or in the community, not only the community of faith, and there again, we need to be careful because a lot of times we see that love demonstrated within the community of faith, but when it becomes to, comes to the community as a whole, we oftentimes have a tendency to drop the ball. Amen. We're to love our enemies. That's right. We're to pray for those who despitefully use us. We're to be kind to them, considerate to them. That's how, we, that's how we manifest our discipleship. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one toward another. Not that superiority exclusive mindset that says, you know, we're better than the neighbor because I claim this, that, or whatever. Men. So John then, he, he makes a contrast here, and that, and that contrast, contrast being that walking in the light isn't hatred versus what is hatred. Hatred's walking in darkness versus walking in the light is not. And those who love fellow Christians are living proof of being in the light. We can claim to be many things. We can, uh, we can claim to be whatever. You know, a lot of folks identify themselves, associate themselves with the name that's on the marquee out in front of their particular church. Or we can be associated with various different movements. That, but, but the true identity of a disciple of Jesus Christ is not by the name that we have on the marquee or who we perhaps associate ourselves with or we identify with as a movement, but it's how we manifest the love of God towards not only those in the body of faith, but those in the world. We also note that in the that in the um, body of believers that John is teaching here is focused on the love that fellow believers should have toward one another. Now, the word that John used for love in this passage is agape, Greek word agape, which speaks of love that is demonstrated through actions. A love that is demonstrated through acts or help or compassion. Actions, not just warm feelings and good intentions, are what love in the community for the believers and for a faith will look like for those who are walking in the light. Good intentions are wonderful, but unless those good intentions come to fruition, they're just nothing more than good intentions. Someone once said that the highway to hell is paved with good intentions. I don't know. I didn't say that, so don't don't uh, don't pin that one on me. I'm just saying <laughs> that's just what I've heard. 
I get pinned for enough, so don't. But, uh, you know, good intentions are just what they are until the love is actually manifested in our actions and in our behavior and how we respond and how we, you know, how we, how, how we look towards others. Amen. Now, those who are walking in darkness, by contrast, John says they lack direction. And they lack meaning in their lives. Which would go along with the idea of walking in darkness. You know, they are blinded to the light of Jesus Christ and cannot lead others in the true faith in him. Because they don't have the light. We can't lead somebody to the light of Jesus Christ if we don't, have, if we don't possess the light. And what happens is the truth eludes that mindset and those and, and as they grasp and they grope in the darkness of, of, of that particular idea, that mindset, hatred. Amen. You notice there's a phrase there at the end of verse 10. He writes, John writes, that he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, yeah, I'm sorry, that was verse 11. Verse 10 says, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. That's an interesting phrase John has put on the end of there. You see, this phrase at the end of this verse, there is nothing in him to make him stumble, is interpreted one of three different ways. I'm going to give you all three interpretations and you can decide from there how you how you want to, uh, which one you want to embrace. The first interpretation is that this phrase can mean that those walking in the light do not stumble. By walking in the light, they keep themselves from stumbling, if you will. That's one way that some interpret this particular passage. Another interpretation of this phrase is that it has also been taken to state that those walking in the light do not cause others around them to stumble. Now, I will tell you now, I lean to this one here. This is the one I wrap my mind around this. Those who walk in the light do not cause those around them to stumble. Amen. Then the third one is, and the last possibility changes the first hymn in there to it with the sense that there is nothing in the light itself to make people stumble. And while that is true in and of itself, I can't argue that point, this is probably the least likely interpretation of the phrase in this passage based on the subject content of what John is saying. He's talking about us loving and that the demonstration of our love and the fact that love in the community demonstrates that we walk in the light of Jesus Christ. So there again, to me, this phrase had... Uh, it means that those walking in the light do not cause others around them to stumble with our actions. Sure. That's right. And other people watch us. And if we're walking in the light, as he is in the light, then we will be less apt to cause someone else to fall Based if we if we act based on the fact that we're walking in the light, Amen. You see, love is, for all intended purposes, love is characteristic of light, and hate is characteristic of darkness. And these two are mortal enemies. They can't live together. They can't coexist. Light and darkness cannot coexist together. It's utterly impossible. There was darkness over the face of the earth. God said, let there be light, and darkness had to go away. So, the fact of the matter is that when we in light that there are mortal enemies, if we say we're walking in the light and we have the light, then darkness has to go away. That doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. That doesn't mean we won't falter in our 
in our daily walk, that doesn't mean that, but that the center of who we are and what we are and what we base everything we are will be the fact the love of Jesus Christ instilled in our hearts, and that's what we will manifest to the world and in the community. Therefore, a person reveals the genuineness of his relationship with God by how? His relationship with others, based on what John has said. Now, understand that when we talk about the world, the world does not refer to the physical creation, but to the sphere of evil operating in our world under the dominion of Satan. When I talk about the world, I'm not talking about the sphere of the world that God created. I'm talking about the evil the sphere of evil operating within our world under the dominion of Satan. Amen. You see, in John's writings, we are called to live holy lives. Now, understand and interpret holiness in the right perspective. Holiness not in the sense that we're gauged on holiness by, um, by certain exterior identifications, but we're gauged on holiness by allowing the Holy Spirit to set apart, to set us apart, to live and love as Jesus did. That's true holiness. Because God is love. Amen? That's what the Bible says. And He calls us to express that love in our relationship with others. Jesus did. They reviled Him. He didn't revile in return. Uh, therefore, we are not to hate our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, we're not even to hate our neighbor. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. And in doing so, we'll fulfill the royal law. Jesus said that's the greatest command, or the greatest commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and thyself as thyself. And all these two commandments hang, hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, the rest of it is worthless without those two. It had really had no, no relevance whatsoever. So, and well, many times it's easy for us to love brothers and sisters within the community of faith. Sometimes it's not. But it's a lot more difficult, it's a lot more trying at times to love those who are outside of the realm of the Christian community, many times based on their attitude, based on their lifestyle, based on the way they think, based on the influence that Hollywood and other things has had on them and you know all of the things that's going on in society and so forth. And oftentimes it's difficult for us to really, we want to grab them and go, <laughs> What are you thinking? But anyway. <clears throat> well, you know, and that there's 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 a measure there's a measure of truth to that, and that is the fact that you know God loves them as He loves us. Now He does not love their deeds, he does not love the evil deeds, He does not love the deeds of the world, but He still loves humanity you know, based on, on the fact that, that we are humanity. He doesn't like our deeds a lot of times either. <laughs> but uh, So, it's important that we forgive offenses quickly so that your hurt and anger does not turn to bitterness and hatred. And, and you know, we, we cannot believe the lie that the world has much to offer. You know, it offers only lust and pride. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But, it only offers lust and pride. It, uh, and we are to separate ourselves from that idolatry, be pure and holy in our love for the Lord God. So, in John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Bible says this. And here's where we go to loving the world and the things that are in the world. John penned these profound words. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now let me stop right there for just a moment and make sure we understand where John is going here. He's not telling us not to exist in the world. 
He's not telling us not to abide in the world. He's telling us not to love the world. You have often heard it said many times that money's the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. The fact that it becomes our God, it becomes what motivates us. It becomes what is the, is the primary focus of who we are and what we are. That's what gets us in trouble. The same idea and principle holds true with what John says here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not let them become your God. Do not let them determine your character and who you are. Do not let them, John is saying here, do not let the world and the things that are in the world become what we are. We're sojourners here. That doesn't mean we're not to live today and tomorrow. We're not to go out and work and provide for our family. That's not what John is saying. But understand the capacity for which we are here in the world, and that is to evangelize the community and the world, not to love it, not to embrace it, because if we're truly walking in the light, we're not going to dwell here too awful long. We're just passing through. We're sojourners here, as the apostle said. So he said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and it desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Jesus said in one place, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will abide forever. Amen. So while the spiritual state of the first century church was healthy, the apostle here still felt compelled to warn them of the dangers of getting too intimate with the world. Just as this teaching of Gnosticism was rising and just as there were some other things that were rising in the midst of all of that as we see so much of today. Amen. We have absolutely seen, and I say this, I hope you receive it in the spirit in which it's intended. We have seen this prosperity doctrine take the world by storm, by many believing that that's, that's biblical, and it's not biblical. Everybody will not be rich. Everybody won't have a, 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 a boatload of money. Everybody won't enjoy uh, unending health forever. I know, you know, they're striving for the fountain of youth, and we want to live. That's not God's plan. And the fact of the matter is, these teachings, and they, they had begun to spring up long before we came on the scene. And as you look, not only in the Apostle John, but the other apostles begin to write and begin to warn the church. Paul said, I know that after my departure shall grievous wolves come in, not sparing the flock. Really could care less about the flock. All they were interested in was their own personal gain and what they could gain from that particular profession. So, and regardless of the level of the maturity of our faith or the depth of our commitment to Jesus Christ, the possibility of stumbling into sin is always present. I could stand here today and, and tell you of several down through the years I have encountered that have fallen by the wayside and have stumbled and have absolutely gone off the deep end with what they believe because they allowed somebody to plant a seed in their heart and mind and it took hold and led them away from the truth. And in this passage, John refutes another false teaching which claimed that Christian could be fully absorbed in the pursuits of the world and still love God.
So John points out, look, a person cannot be devoted to the world and devoted to God at the same time. Jesus talked about that too, did he not? You can't serve God or mammon. You can't have two masters. You love one, hate the other. You'll have, you, you, you won't have, it won't come to a situation where you have divided loyalties. You're either going to be loyal to one and not the other, and vice versa. So John is saying, look, you cannot be engrossed and hung up in the things of the world and make that the centerpiece and focal point of your life and claim to love God. One can either love God or love the world, but not both because these are opposing purposes. The, the world is not going down the same avenue that the church is going. They're going one direction. They're going opposite of everything God believe, everything God has, has spoken and intended for humanity. Again, when I talk about the world, I'm talking about the evil sphere of darkness, okay? Now, there are three characteristics of a life devoted to the world that John points out. Here's where we've got to be careful. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And boy, they can mess with us. The lust of the eyes have gotten people in more trouble. I mean, from early biblical characters on down through it. Eve, she looked at that fruit on that tree, and there's the devil telling her, man, that looks good. And you know what? I bet God told you, Eve, that if you eat of that, you'll die. Yep, that's what he said. No, he lied. He just, that's good, and he just don't want you to have it. He's got that all tucked away for himself. He took the very words of God and twisted them around to serve his own purpose and broke her down. And then she had the power to break down her, her mate. That sure tasted good. I believe that guy was right, that serpent. Anyway, I won't go there. So he said, look, it's the lust, the lust of the eyes and then the pride of life. We all have a certain measure of pride. We may not like to admit it, but we do. And pride oftentimes gets us in a lot of trouble. You see, the lust of the flesh or the cravings of sinful man speaks of the darkened desires of our fallen nature, grasping selfishly at what it wants. Now, here's the thing. Although we've been born again, we still have to deal with our human nature. We still have to deal with our Adamic nature from time to time that rises up and attempts to override the better judgment of a Holy Spirit that resides within us and what we know to be right. And our flesh and our human nature can be very convincing. Oh, yeah. So the lust of the flesh, craving of sinful man, speaks of this darkest desire of fallen nature, grasping selfishly at what it wants. Now, self-sufficiency and rebellion against God's right and true ways mark this craving. God has a sovereign right to take us down whatever road he wants to take us down. He created us, all of human race, regardless whether those who commit their lives to him or not, he created all of human race, and he has the sovereign right. He has the sovereign right to direct my life. My humanity says I'd like to be a millionaire. I wouldn't have to worry about anything. Well, that's a lie in and of itself, but... The other things you worry about then if you're a millionaire. But that's not the road that God has chosen for me. That's not to say that folks in the church cannot be millionaires. Sure, there's a lot of them out there. But that's not the road he has chosen for me. 
So I have to submit to his sovereignty and say, okay, God, if this is the road you've chosen for me, then so be it. Just in case some of you thought I was getting wealthy preaching. Rebellion against God's right and true ways. You know, we, we, can, we can approach God's way in, in one of two ways, I suppose. We can either accept it and say, Lord, your will be done. I am your vessel. I'm your servant. You have called me for this purpose. I'll walk this road. I'll go where you want me to go. Be what you want me to be. Or we can fight it every step of the way. We can rebel. We can say, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I've got my own idea, so forth. That's the two ways we can go. Now, the lust of the eyes is the craving for things in the world that we see and desire to have, and they draw us away from God. Anything, and I I won't dwell on this long because you're all intelligent folks and you know what I'm talking about. Anything that draws our attention away from God and draws our focus away from God It's because of the lust of the eyes. Whether it's material things, regardless of what it is, it doesn't matter. If it takes us away from being able to do what God has called us to do, then we've stepped over the line. Amen. It's about chasing the temporal things around us that we see and long to have for ourselves rather than pursuing the eternal spiritual realities that are seen. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, that's not to say there's anything that's unhealthy or wrong or, 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 or ungodly or sinful about, about you know, saying, you know, it, it'd be nice if I could go uh, buy a new automobile or, you know, maybe sell our home and upgrade, but... If it puts us in a position where we can no longer do what God has called us to do, or it puts us in a place where it takes away from our ministry and from what God has in store for us, then we have stepped over the line. And the lust of the eyes will do that for us. I mean, if we're not careful. And we have a unique ability as human beings to justify things. Oh, some of the things we can come up with. Some of the things our minds can conjure up. I ask myself sometimes, preacher, what are you thinking? Because we have this unique ability to want to go one direction and we can go and and we can look long enough to find one line in a passage somewhere to justify what we're about to do. Well, God showed me it was okay. No, we never. Because we have, we, you know, the lust of the eyes, it's, it's, it's one of the strongest cravings. I mean, we, it, it keeps us, it'll keep you awake at night. You'll see it in your sleep. You'll dream about it. It'll just mess with you from now on until finally you'll figure out a way. If you don't get before God and get it taken care of and get it, Lord, no, now here's, Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Because all of the things that we acquire, all of the fame and fortune that we may amass over our short lifetime will not go with us when we go by way of the grave. And if we're alive when Jesus returns and we go through the change, it will not go with us. All that we have done here remains behind. But it's what we do for Christ. It's how we abide in His Word. It's how we allow Him to use us in the influence in the lives of others that will go with us beyond the grave. It's how we have lived our life for Him that will be a testimony when we get on the other side. Amen. And if we have allowed His Word we have walked in the light as he is in the light. We will have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, will cleanse us from all sin.
Do you realize we have folks sitting in our churches today professing to be born again, blood-bought, baptized in His name, that haven't spoken in years because of differences in animosity and things that happened years gone by. And I, you know, that's not the case here at High Point Church. I understand that. But you'd be surprised how much of that goes on within supposedly the Christian community. How pastors across town won't have anything to do with another pastor because whatever. And finally, the pride of life. The pride of life or the boasting of what one has and does has to do with taking pride in our outward circumstances or feeling smug and superior and failing to humbly give credit to God. If we have, if we have anything... If we have anything, we owe it to God. You see, it is a focus on accomplishments and possessions... And leads to worship of status and stuff versus God. We focus on possessions and things and abilities and talents. Turns our focus to that instead of to God. Now John reminds the church that the things of the world are temporary. They're only passing. He's given us that God has blessed us with some amazing and tremendous things while we're here. Amen? Over the nearly 40 years or so I've been alive, well, and, well, nearly the 60 years I've been alive, why, I have seen God, God has blessed us with, with tremendous things. We've seen the advancement of technology. My, what we can do now in the ministry is just absolutely breathtaking how God has blessed and, and so forth. It's, 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 it's absolutely. But we understand and we know, we have to know, these are all passing away. These are just instruments and vessels that we use as we are passing through. They could be here today and gone tomorrow. I, there was a day when I preached that back in the early years that PA systems were very few and far between. Of course, God so blessed me with a voice that, you know, it doesn't matter if we have a PA system or not, you're going to hear me. Amen. I've got my own built-in amplifier system that we can get it out there. And but but all of these things are temporal. You know, our homes and our cars, the nice automobiles that we drive, and all of the luxuries that we afford. And and don't forget that they're all wonderful and good things, and they make life much better for us. But they're all passing away. But there's the things that we do for God that's going to stand the test of time. When we stand before Him, as Paul talked about, and we give an account for the deeds which we have done in the body, whether they be good or bad, it's going to be the things that remain. Where we built with gold and silver and precious stones and things that will stand the test of eternity. It's that soul that stands beside us on the other side that we were instrumental in leading them to the foot of Calvary and introducing them to Jesus Christ. It's that person next door that we loved and we took care of and we helped and we nurtured along and we, we provided whatever the case might be that, that we extended ourselves to express Christ's love for them. That's what will make the difference. Jesus said, you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me water to drink when I was thirsty. You clothed me. You took me in. You did this. And Jesus said, or these, these folks said, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We never, when did we do all that? He said, as you've done this unto the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. As you've done it unto the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. 
And eternal pursuits are not of this world. Eternal pursuits involve walking in the light of God's will for you and I today. Loving others in the community of faith and loving God wholly, not the things of the world. Amen. Amen. I close with this thought. John refers to the world six times in John chapter one verses and John chapter first John two, fifteen through seventeen. And in this passage, world denotes something that is opposed to the love of God. Now, Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter six and twenty four as mammon. Where he also taught that one could not be devoted to the things of the world and also serve God. He said, you can't serve God and mammon. So we see that the world here denotes evil system around us under the control of Satan. And it is as John described in, in chapter 2, verse 16, a world of cravings and lust and pride that has turned its back on God. And we see that today if we never have before. Amen? Now, understand this. John had something entirely different in mind about the world when he referred to it in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In that where he said, God, loved, God so loved the world, he gave his Son to die. You see, God loves the people of the world, which is what John 3, 16 denotes. While we are to share his concern for the lost, we are not to love the dark, evil, and self-indulgent world and the system that opposes him. Amen. 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 God bless you. Let's take a few moments, and then we'll come back right at 11 o'clock.